The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're going through the book of James. Just many distinctive features about James, the first New Testament book probably written. Um, a book full of commands and imperatives, negative ones and positive ones. But, so it's a pungent kind of book right from the get-go. And it's a call to action for all believers. Really intended for an audience of Christians who have been believers for a decade plus, And maybe now we're in a state of a little bit of lethargy. And so James has given him a shot in the arm and he's cracking the whip. He does this every chapter and so it's appropriate for us because every... Sunday, there's going to be lessons, practical things we can apply from what we learned from James, uh, from all of his commands, both negative and positive. Uh, today, we're looking at James chapter 2, verses 14 down to 20. Uh, 14 and 20 is actually part of a bigger section, 14 through 26. Uh, we're going to take it slow on 21 through 26 because this is probably the most controversial part of the book of James, uh, 14 through 26, or at least it has been. It doesn't need to be. Um, But we're going to look at 14 through 20 because that's kind of one theme today. Uh, Follow along as I read. But actually what I want to do, I want to read. The discussion in 14 through 26 is actually a part of all of chapter 2 that came before and even a part of the end of chapter 1. Remember when James wrote this letter, it was just like a letter you write to a friend. So he wasn't writing chapter and verse and making these clear breaks. This is an ongoing theme. There's continuity and it's connected. So what we're reading today is defined by what came before, and we can't forget that. That's the context. That's probably one of the biggest problems of why people are confused about James 2, 14 through 26, because they usually want to just jump into that passage and, oh, yeah, James, does he contradict Paul and blah, 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 and they're, you're missing the point. Uh, what, let's just let's see what James has to say uh, in context. What's his own argument? Let it stand on its own ground. And there's much he has to say. But I want to read James 1, 22, and then 27, and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and then I'm going to skip to 14 through 20. Because that kind of gives us the big picture of what James has been talking about in this theme as he's addressing Jewish believers. Uh, James 1, 22, he says, But be proved yourselves doers of the Word. Walk your talk. Do the Word. Do what the Bible says. And there's a lot of commands and things we need to do in chapter 2. Be doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Verse 27, This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That is religion that pleases God. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, fellow believers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty, ragged clothes, and yet you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, oh, you sit here in a good place. And yet you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions or discriminations among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, fellow believers, 
If a man or a professing Christian says he has faith, but he has no works, can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Whoa, you foolish fellow. Woe, verse 4, evil motives. Woe, he's even going to get heavy dutier later in the book. This is James, Pastor James talking to his congregants. He's honest, he's got a beautiful balance. My beloved brethren, I love you. What you're doing there, if you're doing it, is compromising and foolish. We need to listen to James. How can we apply this to our life? So let's go ahead and look at your handout there. We're going to focus in on 14 through 20. And 14 through 26 will go together. And this is that famous passage that where it talks about so much emphasizing works and faith and what is their relationship to one another and where people want to say that uh, James and Paul contradicted each other. Okay, here's the first thing I want you to do. Get the Apostle Paul and everything you've learned about the Apostle Paul out of your mind totally while we're reading James chapter 2. Because when James wrote this to his congregation, there was no such thing as Paul. And that makes a huge difference. James wrote first, Paul came later. Paul's probably not, he's probably not even a Christian yet. He's probably still Saul beating up, killing Christians. He's probably one of those rich dudes that's condemned earlier in the chapter. So there's no uh, teaching going on of this justification by faith that Paul brought in by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God to add to the greater canon and theology of Christianity, but it's historical and it comes later. It fills in a hole. It's perfectly timed. It complements what James is teaching. But right now you're in the early Christian community and you don't know anything about the Apostle Paul or the book of Romans. You've never seen the book of Galatians. you never even heard of it because it doesn't exist. Okay, that's the audience James was talking to. So anytime James says justification, it's not what Paul meant because Paul hadn't used that word yet. When James says works and faith... He's not echoing Paul because Paul hasn't preached yet. Uh, James is more dependent and reliant upon Jesus in the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets than he is on Paul. He's not dependent upon Paul at all. The Spirit of God is leading him into this truth. So that, that historical context keeps us from being anachrostic or mixing up history and diluting uh, and making it confusing. So we'll take James uh, as he stands all on his own. And it's really much easier to understand what he's talking about. And we saw the emphasis there. He said, be doers of the Word. Man, you've been saved for 15, 20 years. You've been waiting for Jesus. Some of you are lethargic. I even hear there's compromise going on in your church. Yeah, times are hard and uh, we're, we're suffering and trials, but that's the nature of life. You need to depend upon God. He's totally sovereign. Seek His wisdom. Trust in Him. Count it all joy when you have hard times. I know you've been chased out of Jerusalem and Palestine for various reasons, including persecution. I understand that. But you still need to lean on God and have joy in those times. And I know it's been a long time. Jesus said, I'm coming quickly. And it's been 17 years. But be patient. He is coming quickly. He is coming indeed. And I hear this little compromise going on in your congregations here and there. That's sad. And that's why I'm writing to you. 
Stay strong. Persevere. Don't give up. And quit showing partiality by those who think are going to better you along because of your weaker circumstances, especially these rich people coming in and you don't even know where they're coming from. Don't neglect and forget the poor that are among you, that are many, that dominate, that are like you or what you used to be. Show your faith. Exhibit your faith. Manifest your true faith by the works and the lifestyle you have as a Christian. Because every true Christian is going to produce godly fruits in their life. It's guaranteed by God. The Spirit of God guarantees it by living in you as a Christian. That's James chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to James chapter 2 where we are today. That is the pastoral exhortation he's giving his congregation. And that's what it is in context. Let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, So I'm taking uh, verses 14 through 20. Now, um, and I just broke it up. You can look at your hand out there on uh, four points I want to highlight there. And he says in verse 14, so that would be point number one. Let's go ahead and look right at it. Uh, Point number one, verse 14, is the interrogation. interrogation, An interrogator is somebody who asks questions to get information. And that's what James is doing. He, he does it. He uses it as a tool. Jesus did that to evoke truth, to diagnose where people are at. What are they thinking? I need to know what they think first before I can give counsel. I need to make a diagnosis. And asking questions is a great way to get a diagnosis to see what people think. And that's what he's doing. He asks two rhetorical questions. He's interrogating them to get needed information. So that's verse 14. That's why I said on point number one, verse 14, the interrogation about useless faith. His conclusion, hear it. Hear what I have to say. Listen to my questions very carefully. Diagnose your own life. Examine yourself and think about what the answers to my two questions would be because that's going to determine where you are as a Christian in relation to the topic at hand. So here's his questions. What use, what use is it, my brethren? What use is it, fellow Christian? If a Christian says he has faith, oh, I believe in Jesus. But at the same time, he has no works. So the word works does occur in the New Testament several different places. It occurs in different contexts, and that's a key rule of hermeneutics or Bible interpretation. Any word only means what it means as it is defined by its immediate context. So there are all kinds of works in the New Testament. There are the works of the law that Paul condemned. Those were not good. Those were people, especially Jews, trying to save themselves by doing Old Testament law. Ten Commandments, whatever what Moses wrote. The works of the law. Those aren't the kind of works that James is talking about. Paul also refers to the works of the flesh. There's another kind of work. So you've got works of the law, works of the flesh. Works of the flesh were usually what pagans or Gentiles who didn't know the Bible and didn't know God, uh, the works of the flesh just talks about their behavior, their words, their attitudes, and their lifestyle that was godless and immoral. The works of the flesh. They did everything to please self and the flesh. He's not talking about those kind of works. In verse 14, he's talking about good works, holy works, supernatural works produced by God through the believer in the believer's life. And the works are things, works are things that are made manifest. You can see them or the byproduct of the result of works. And these are good works, holy works from God, divine and supernatural, done with the proper motive. The byproduct of being a truly regenerate, born again Christian. Ephesians 2.10. We all know Ephesians 2.8 and 9, for by grace, the act of God, the initiative of God, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It wasn't by your works, but it was by your faith in what God did. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, lest anybody should boast and be proud of it, 
but it's all the work of God. It's the gift of God. And then he goes on to say in Ephesians 2.10 that you, Christian, are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world where God gave you works to fulfill in eternity past that He wants you to fulfill in this lifetime on His behalf through the power and energy of the Holy Spirit in the context of a Christian life. Those godly works. God planned godly works for the Christian in eternity past. Every Christian should be producing godly, holy, good works. That is God's plan. So these are good, holy works. That's what he's talking about. Verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? What he's saying is, how can you tell me that you're a Christian, and yet we look at your life and there are no words, there are no attitudes, and there are no actions that reflect Christ-like behavior? It's either a zero, you're totally neutral, and I can't tell you apart from your average unbeliever, or the works that you do are godless. That is totally inconsistent with what God says about a Christian. And that's why he says at the end of this, the other rhetorical question, a Christian who has no godly fruits in their life, he says, can that faith save him? It is a rhetorical question. And what he's saying is, no, you don't have saving faith. You're not a real Christian. You've got faith, but it's a, a counterfeit faith. And that's what he's really addressing in this whole passage. James is exposing counterfeit faith. Jesus warned us and told us that in the church, as long as the church is on earth, as long as it exists, there will always be counterfeit Christians who have counterfeit faith. And Jesus told James and John, and don't, tra-, and it's like there's the wheat and the weeds, and they grow up together. And when, some, when wheat is little and some weeds are little, they look identical. And you are not going to know the difference until they grow up and until they produce fruit. The wheat will produce fruit that is edible, wholesome, and good. The weeds will grow up and produce fruit that is bad. Thistles. Thorns. But you won't know till harvest time. And God is the harvester. So in the meantime, don't try to uproot and pull out uh, the weeds from the wheat because you don't know people's hearts. Only God does. But Jesus promised that in the church, as long as the church existed on earth in a fallen world and there's sin around, then there will always be the wheat and the weeds among the wheat. So that's just typical of Christianity, the church. It's true of every church in America. You've got weeds among the wheat. You have goats, bad. Sheep, good. You've got goats among the sheep. Jesus said that. Um, so James, is tra- he, James knows that. He has seen it. Um, James knows there's counterfeits. Jesus taught on this. Jesus warned us of false prophets and false believers. And so James is reiterating this. Man, we've got, you've got to watch out for false uh, profession, uh, faith that is dead, faith that is useless, faith that is counterfeit. It is not legitimate. It is not from God. It's not a byproduct of being saved and truly regenerate. So there's counterfeit faith. And many times it is almost impossible to see, but it will be revealed over time. So he's talking about the nature of faith, a supernatural... By, by the way, did you know that when it says Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith, the medium of faith. God initiates salvation. God does everything. He provides the sacrifice through Jesus Christ. But humans have to provide something in the process of salvation. It is a real personal choice that I make. I actually exercise my will and my volition in the salvation process. I am responding to the work of God and I believe in the Gospel with a real understanding and legitimate volitional faith. So the human... We are not robots. There is a personal response 
to the call of God and His Gospel. He's the Savior. He's the initiator. He does it all. He does all the work. My response, my responsibility is to believe what He said and to believe and embrace and assimilate and appropriate and hang on to what He has done. It's by God's works that I am saved, not my own works. But it is by my faith in God's works in the cross of Jesus Christ that I am saved. But it's got to be real, legitimate, bona fide, supernaturally produced faith. And that's what he's getting at here. And faith, saving faith only comes from one place. It doesn't come from human reason. It doesn't come from man-made rituals. It doesn't come from human tradition. It doesn't come from religion. It doesn't come from just conjuring it up with self-will. The only kind of faith that saves is supernatural faith. And it only comes from one place. Paul made it clear, Romans 10, verse 17, in his great discussion on soteriology and salvation. And he said, faith comes by hearing. The revelation, the supernatural intervention and revelation from an Almighty God from heaven to us who are sinners on earth. That's where faith comes from. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? The Word of Christ. The Word of God. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Scriptural divine revelation. That is the only source of saving Faith. You cannot be saved apart from hearing the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot be saved apart from the divine revelation of Scripture. You can't. You can't be saved from uh, stories you hear that are emotional, but if they are void of the Gospel, the clear Gospel of who Jesus is, what He did, what He requires, you cannot have saving faith. That's what he's talking about here. So he goes back. Uh, look at 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man, if a Christian? Uh, so what, who is this person? This, impo- this theoretical imposter probably thinks he's a Christian. So he's self-deluded. And if you were to interview him for the membership class, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe in the Gospel? Yes. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross? Yes. Do you believe He rose from the dead? Yes. Do you believe He's the only way to heaven? Yes. Do you believe He's God in a body? Yes. Do you believe He's existed for all eternity? Yes. Do you believe you're a sinner? Yes. Do you believe in the Trinity? Yes. Do you believe in hell? Yes. Wow. Hey, you can join our church. Whoa. See, that's how only God knows the heart, doesn't He? So, James is never questioning the orthodoxy of this imposter. As a matter of fact, this imposter doesn't think they're imposter. This imposter thinks they're saved. That's the sad thing. They're not trying to trick anybody. They are self-deceived. So, James is trying to diagnose this. And make a point. Well, there's no fruit in your life. Man, you've been, you've been a Christian for 23 years. There's no godly fruit in your life. Not only is there no godly fruit, there, there's carnal fruit in your life. How do you explain that? Well, he's going to get to that. So the interrogation. We need to hear it. We need to, ta- we need to embrace it. It is a reality. We can't shy away from this. This makes people mad. This makes professing Christians mad. This makes real Christians mad by even bringing up the topic. Uh, but Jesus brought it up. He started it. He started making people mad. Look at Matthew chapter 7. Uh, verse 21. By the way, in this discussion, James is saying that if you're a real Christian, you're going to have fruit in your life. If you're a real Christian, you're going to have godly fruit in your life that is clearly manifest so that all can see. But you know what? It's not only Christians who have fruit in their life. Unbelievers have fruit in their life, don't they? What do they have? They have bad fruit in their life. And that's what Jesus says. Look at Matthew 7. Uh, starting at verse 15, Matthew 7, beware of the false prophets. Okay, these are people who are not Christians. They're not regenerate. They are professing Christians. They believe. They say they believe in Jesus, but they really don't. 
They are imposters. Could very well be that they think they're saved and they're not, so they're self-deluded. That's what makes it so sad. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Verse 16. No, get this. Verse 16. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. You can't judge me. You can't judge them. Yes, we can. Jesus said it right here. You're going to know them by their fruits. What does that mean? That's not talking about their heart. We can't judge another person's heart, thoughts, or motives. That's Matthew 7.1. You can't judge on the inside of a person. There are things about a person that I can judge, that I can look at and assess and compare it to Scripture. And that is what they manifest in their life with their verbalization of their words, the actions that they do, and the attitudes that they manifest. That is the kind of fruit. And the teaching that they teach. That is fruit as well. So that's fruit that we can actually examine. So there's fruit we can examine. Judging not, lest be be judged. Mm, Yes and no. You can't judge their motives, their thoughts, or whatever. But we can judge their fruit. Because Jesus said so, verse 16. You're going to know them. You'll know them clearly by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes. Grape, that's a Christian. A thorn bush, that's an unbeliever. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree that's a Christian bears good fruit. There it is. Their lifestyle is going to be godly. They're not perfect. He's not talking about perfection. But he's talking about a trend in the lifestyle and a direction. Uh, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the rotten tree, that's an unbeliever, bears bad fruit. A rotten tree produces bad, ungodly fruit. They don't have the ability to produce godly fruit. Uh, then he goes on to look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, this is on Judgment Day, by the way, at the end of the age, and where every person has to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give account for what they did with Jesus and His death and resurrection. Not everyone who says to me on Judgment Day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. See, this is somebody with a profession in Christianity. I believe in Jesus. So they have a profession of faith and they have an intellectual assent to Christianity. And then there's going to be a, an awakening, an eye-opening that's very sad, sobering. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one, get this, the one who does the will of my Father, the one who does godly works, will reveal who the true Christians are. This isn't teaching salvation by works. All Jesus is saying is, the works they produced in their life are going to be consistent with the profession that they made because a true, regenerate, born-again Christian is going to produce godly works in their life because God guarantees that God is the one who's going to produce those good works in their life through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about. The one who does. Not just mere profession and intellectual assent, but profession. Uh, but good works that are being produced through God. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I never knew you, he goes on to say. Wow, it is sobering. You can go back to James now. So that's the point in verse 14 as he introduces this topic. Be discerning, uh, hear it, listen to it, diagnose yourself, look at uh, those around you, look at the fruit, look at the fruit in your own life. Uh, You can't be an inconsistent Christian. Your life will reveal what's in your heart. That's the whole point. And there were false professors who were... Uh, lived the facade and they were hard to detect and almost impossible to discern for those closely around them. Judas is the perfect example. He's the quintessential example because for three years Judas walked and talked with the other 11 apostles. Uh, They trusted Judas. He professed in Jesus. He followed Jesus. He listened to Jesus' teaching. He even propagated Jesus' teaching. 
They had trusted him so much that they entrusted him to be the banker or treasurer of their small group. Here, Judas, you're a trustworthy guy. Here, you take all of our money. And here he's pilfering it all the while because he's a phony. He was never a Christian, ever. The book of John is clear on that. Judas, Judas didn't lose his salvation. He never had salvation in the first place. He thought he did. He was self-deceived. He was never saved. He's a perfect example of who James is talking about. Uh, the other example is the religious uh, priest and the religious Levi in Luke chapter 10 in the Good Samaritan story where they walk by this guy that got all beat up on the road to Jericho. And so the religious priest and the religious Levite walk by and they just see this guy that's all beat up. And they don't want anything to do with him. They just walk right by. There's no fruit. There's no compassion. The heart of God is not in them and they just totally neglect this guy. And then another person comes along and they act on the compassion they have from God in their heart. And that's the true love of Christ. Perfect illustration for what he's talking about. So there are phonies. So that's point number one, the interrogation. Let's look at the illustration he gives. Uh, number two, which is 15 and 16. If you're a real Christian, there's got to be godly fruit in your life somewhere. Uh, 15 and 16, here's his illustration. For example, if a brother or sister is without clothing. Now, this is very important to James. He keeps talking about these poor people. He talked about poor people at the beginning of chapter 2. Boy, don't, be, don't show favoritism for rich people and away from poor people. Uh, he also talked about rich people, I mean poor people that uh, attention to their needs pleases God as true religion in chapter 1 verse 27 when he talked about orphans and widows in their distress. Many times they were impoverished. They were poor. And James is going to pick up this theme later on again. People who are poor without truly economically deprived, impoverished, truly needy. James has a heart for those people. Christian, the Christian community needs to have a priority for these kind of people, have a heart for these people. Because it's the heart of God. We were poor and dead in our sins, right? And God had a heart for us, the poor. Um, so that's verse 15. Here's his illustration, verse 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, could be that this is a couple of Christians that come and visit, or even in the congregation, because he calls them a brother or sister. Verse 16. So there's somebody that comes to your congregation, your house or whatever, or in your community, and get this, uh, they are without clothing. That's probably the outer garment that people typically wore, so it's all they got is shreds of their underwear on. What else do they need? They don't even have daily food. They, they are not going to eat today and they don't have anything for tomorrow. You can't get any more basic and needy. I mean, this is about as basic as you can get. This should be a no-brainer. The religions of the world will meet the needs of these kind of people. Gladly. Atheists in the secular social community will meet the needs of these people. That's the irony of his illustration. But man, there are people who call themselves Christians who won't even stoop to or bend over back or do anything. Lift a finger to meet this kind of a need. How inconsistent is that? If there's a brother or sister without clothing or food and then they come to you and all your response is, it's very religious, it is very pious, it sounds good. Verse 16, go in peace. So you're not giving anything. You're not giving them any clothes. Well, the closet where all the clothes are, it's locked. And we're, we're closed and I don't have the key. Well, then give them your coat. Why not? But they don't. Uh, go and pee. Be warmed and be filled. I hope you find some food. Heard the government's got a good social program. Campbell Soup. Go check that out. 
Go in peace. Be warned and be filled. And yet, you do not give, you as a Christian, you as a professing Christian, do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? That is pathetic is what he's saying. It is useless. It is Christless. It is godless. It is basic, fundamental to Scripture, Christianity, the heart of God, compassion for people. How can you call yourself a Christian? That's the illustration. Another powerful verse that speaks to... Look at 1 John. Just a few books over. Flip to your right there. 1 John chapter 3. John says the same thing. If you had true faith, if you were truly a Christian, then you'd have the love of God shed abroad in your heart like Romans 5 says. When you become a Christian, you have the love of God shed abroad in your heart. You have the Spirit of God living in you to compel you to do the works of the Spirit, the first one being love. So faith manifests itself through love, and love is primarily an action of service, selfless service towards other people. So certainly if you were a Christian, you'd be meeting the most basic needs of someone in this condition. Without food and without clothing, especially a fellow brother or sister in your church. Uh, 1 John chapter 3. We know love. John's talking about true love and false love. We know true love by this. Supernatural love from God. That Jesus laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for other people. For the brethren, believers. Verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods. Okay. So if you've got everything you need in this world, You've got riches, you can pay the bills, you can pay for food, your cover's even full, you've got everything you need, maybe a few luxuries on the side, you've got it all. You've got everything you need. Which is typically most Americans. According to the 2010 census, even people in poverty here in America pretty much have everything they need. The majority. So, verse 17, but whoever has this world's goods and beholds a brother in need, so, there's, so you see somebody in need, they've got a a real need, it's legitimate, it is urgent, it's basic. It's not a luxury, it's not a desire, it is a need in their life. You see a brother in need, and yet you close up your heart against him. In other words, you don't have any compassion towards him. You become cold. You don't respond. You don't give them what they need. Christian, John is baffled by this behavior because he says, if you close up your heart against them, how does the love of God abide in you? You can't be a Christian. It's the only thing that John the Apostle can conclude. Christians need to be giving people. That is one of the most basic Christian virtues, is giving. How do I know that? Well, I think about that great verse, John 3.16. God so loved. God so loved. Well, He's got to manifest His love somehow. God so loved that He gave. It's the very character and heart of God is giving. And if we're Christians, we are like Christ, we are like God, then we need to give, don't we? Giving needs to be a lifestyle and a basic virtue of the Christian. You can't be a greedy Ebenezer Scrooge, tight-fisted all the time. That's what James is saying. That's what John is saying. This is the heart of God. Uh, Verse 18, John says, Little children, uh, believers, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Our actions need to correspond to our profession of faith. We need to walk our talk this is the exact same thing James is talking about. This is basic. This is fundamental Christianity. So that's the illustration. Uh, 50, he goes on um, and concluding the end of verse 16, it is useless. So the illustration of useless faith. And then he says, face it. It's useless. It is worthless. It amounts to nothing. It accomplishes. I don't care about all your religious rituals that you do and your incense that you light and all this other stuff and rigmarole. 
uh, that accomplishes nothing. This intellectual faith that manifests itself simply in religious ritual. Well, I go to church. Well, that's not good enough. There's no guarantee you're a true believer if you just go to church or have an intellectual assent to the doctrines of Christianity. It's more than that. A divine supernatural encounter and transaction should have happened in your heart. So that's what he's going to get to. So number three is the implication. Well, what's the implication of all this stuff? Uh, verse 17. Even so, here's my conclusion. Here's the implication. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Being by itself. If you profess to believe in Christ and profess Christianity, and yet you know, have no godly works that corroborate that or are a part of your life on a regular basis, then it's void, empty, nothing. As a matter of fact, it is dead. Your faith is worthless. Your faith is not supernatural. Your faith didn't save you. You are not faith. Uh, you are not saved. Your faith is illegitimate. It's a counterfeit. It's dead faith. It's dead orthodoxy. So we need to admit it. Even so, faith, if it has no godly works, is dead being by itself. John Calvin, 500 years ago, correctly said that justification is by faith alone. And then he said, but the faith that justifies is never alone. And what he meant by that was, uh, it's all God's doing for us to get saved. And then when God saves us, he uses... Uh, he allows us the medium of faith. We believe in order to get saved. No human works. But once we believe, we are changed. We are generate. We become born again. We're a new creature. The Spirit of God who created the universe and raised Jesus from the dead instantly resides in the believer. That is supernatural power that the Christian has in their life, which gives them the potential and the ability to produce these godly works. So it's a real, legitimate, supernatural faith that came only... By the way, in, Gen in Ephesians 2.8, which we've quoted a few times, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not a result of works. He, and he says, it is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Well, salvation is the gift of God. The grace that God used to save you is the gift of God. And even the faith that God gave you that you exercised is a gift of God. Faith is a gift from God. Saving faith is not inherent in our own being. It is not innate. It is a gift that came from God supernaturally, externally from us. Supernatural saving faith comes from God and God alone. Comes from the Scriptures and the Scriptures alone. Comes from the Gospel and the Gospel alone. That's the implication. By the way, uh, three times in this passage, he refers to dead faith. Uh, 17 and then verse 20. Uh, 20, oops... Uh, 26, dead. And in verse 20, uh, you foolish fellow that faith without works is useless. Some translations say dead. Uh, so three times. Dead, dead, dead. Here's how to recognize dead faith. So let's go on to number four. So now he's, I call it the invitation. In light of all of his reasoning, he's calling us to action as James does over and over again, calling us to action Examine our life, do a diagnosis, answer the rhetorical questions, evaluate where we're at. Is my walk consistent with my talk? Are the fruits of my life consistent with a godly, regenerate heart that was done by God Himself through belief in Jesus Christ? Am I a giving person? Do I have the heart of God? Or am I a stingy person? Am I meeting the needs of those around me? Well, here's His invitation, uh, verse 18 and 20. But someone may well say, so a couple theoretical situations. Uh, you have faith, 
and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So James is comparing himself. There's two professing Christians. This professing Christian has a profession of faith. They believe intellectually all the orthodoxy, but they don't have any good godly works in their life. They just have their rituals, maybe go to church. That's about it. But if you just looked at their life for a long period of time, you wouldn't know anything about them that makes them distinctly Christian whatsoever. Then there's another person who's a professing Christian, but they have obvious godly works issuing out of their life in their godly attitudes. They're not a whiner and a complainer. They believe in the sovereignty of God and knows that He is in charge of all things and I can trust Him for all things. And if they do complain, they confess their sin because they want to be right with God. So they're godly in their attitudes. They don't gossip. They love people. They pray when no one's looking. They've got godly actions and works and fruit in their life. They're a giving person. They have, they lo- they have a compassion for people. They care about the needy. They care about the unity of the church and the saints. They care about the will of God. They love Scripture. And it, this is manifest and it is seen by their lifestyle. So that's what he's doing. He's just comparing two. Here's a person who has a profession of faith and works. One who has a profession of faith and no works whatsoever. And James concludes, then one of you is saved and one of you isn't. So he goes on with his invitation. Show me your faith and I'll show you my works, my godly works. And again, he's not saying you're saved by works. As a matter, go back to verse 14. James doesn't get confused on this. James knows how to be saved. It's, you are saved by the Word, he said in James chapter 1. And then in verse 14, at the end of the verse, he says, can that faith save him? There it is. James is saying that faith saves people. That's what saves. It's not works. Faith saves people. And it's a shorthanded way of saying it. What does he mean, faith saves people? Well, it's Ephesians 2, 8 9. By grace you've been saved through faith. Or Jesus, literally, when He healed that woman, and He said, your faith has saved you. And what Jesus meant by that was, you put your trust in the revealed Word of God. You embraced it, and as a result, God gave you salvation. So James understands that salvation is by faith because he says at the end of verse 14, he is not confused. Faith comes first, salvation, then works issues forth. So uh, let's go back to verse 18 through 20. Uh, then he gives this, uh, he addresses this idea of this uh, intellectual only faith or orthodoxy. New subject, verse 19. You believe that God is one. You believe, what it was that? Well, that's Deuteronomy 6.4. It was the main doctrinal profession of believing Jews. That God is one. It meant a lot of different things in the context. God is one. That means that the true God of the universe is monotheistic. He's not polytheistic, which is correct. So we believe in the, uh, a monotheistic God. Also, it, it had to do with God's sovereignty. He's the only God. He's the, he is God and God alone. There are no competitors, which was also true. He's the only God. He's the sovereign God. That's all bound up in that phrase. You believe that God is one. And he commends them for that. You do well. So he's saying you have the most fundamental and basic orthodox profession. That's great. You got it. Because you got to have good theology about who God is. You can't be a Christian if your theology about God and Jesus and the Trinity is all messed up. Because it's a person. And we come to know that person. So you've got to have a right theology about the Trinity, who God is, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You've got to know who he is first. So he's commending for them, them for that. You've got a proper, basic view of the monotheistic God of the Old Testament. Great. You do well. 
And then he reminds them of this truth. But you know what? The demons also believe. And unlike you, some of you, they shudder. Wow. So he's saying there's more than an intellectual assent to truth. The demons illustrate... Did you know there are no atheist demons? There are no... Satan is not an agnostic. Satan is a religionist. He is a theist. He believes in God. He knows God exists. Same with the demons. And unlike some superficial, unsaved Christians who camouflage, they're not Christians, they're professing believers who camouflage as Christians, who have absolutely no reaction in their life and that their faith doesn't seem to impact anything about them whatsoever, at least we get an emotional reaction from demons who believe in God, at least. That's more than these intellectual assenting people. So he's, he's really rebuking him. Man, you don't even have an emotional reaction about your faith in God. Isn't that the most important thing in the world? Man, it seems like you'd at least have the warm fuzzies or you'd get excited about your faith. You're stone cold, dead orthodoxy. It's more than intellectual assent. There's got to be a, an emotional com- component to it because salvation includes the entire human being. Everything about me. My intellect and my emotions. And he's saying that demons know God exists, they believe in Him, and they even respond accordingly in fear and with amazing emotion. And I want to show you an example. Let's look at Mark chapter 5. And a specific example. And there are many in the Gospels where Jesus is walking along doing His thing and then He runs into somebody that's demon-possessed and the demons inside that human being immediately know who Jesus is, that He is God in a body, and they are scared to death and they react. And they react appropriately. They react with fear. They react acknowledging His sovereignty and that He's totally in control. These are demons. Uh, So Mark 5 says this. This is Jesus going about doing His ministry. Uh, He comes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee into the country of the Gerasenes or the Gadareans. And when Jesus had come out of the boat, immediately He's confronted as He's stepping out of the boat onto the shore. And immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. So there's this guy who lived in caves and he, had a, he was demon-possessed. This is one scary, ugly, and probably smelly dude. He confronts Jesus. He's a demon-possessed guy. And by the way, the, the demon is in control here. The demon is doing everything. He's controlling this guy's body. Verse 3, he confronts Jesus and he had his dwelling among the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with chains. This guy had supernatural strength from a demon inside of him. Verse 4, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying and gnashing himself with stones. Verse 6, and seeing, so the demon inside of him was trying to kill him. And seeing Jesus from a distance, this demon-possessed man ran up and, get this, bowed down before Jesus. Wow. Bowed down before Jesus. Verse 7. And the demon inside of this man was crying out with a loud voice. It is just this loud, screeching, piercing, ghastly voice of a demon speaking through this man. That's what's going on here. Crying out very loud. And I don't even want to try to imitate it. What do I have to do with you? Check out his theology. He knows who Jesus is. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just a nice guy. He's not just a social worker. This demon knows who Jesus is. His theology 101 is perfect. Who is God? And he knows that Jesus is God in a body. What do I have to do? What do I have to do with you? Jesus, God said. He even knows Jesus by name. Son of the Most High. See, he knows that Jesus is deity. 
Because the demons know who God is. Not only does he know who God is, he knows what God can do, and he knows that he is submissive to the will of God. And so that's why this demon says, I implore you by God the Father, do not torment me. See, he knows that Jesus is sovereign and has all power over him. So the demons have good orthodoxy. They have good theology about God and Jesus. Verse 8, For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus then asked him, What's your name? And the demon said to him, My name is Legion. How's that? (laughs) For we are many. So, wow, he's got countless demons inside of him. No wonder he was so strong. And he began to entreat Jesus earnestly not to send him out of the country. And now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountainside. And the demons entreated Jesus saying, Send us into the swine so that he may enter them. And then Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and they went hog wild, and the herd rushed down. Anyway, you can read the rest of the story on your own. Uh, Let's go back to James 2. But the point is, James is saying, don't just give me a a profession of basic orthodoxy because even Satan and demons believe that God is one as well. That proves nothing. You need an accurate orthodoxy about who God is, but it's more than that. So verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, Now, he's talking to the person who's self-deceived, thinks they're saved. They are not saved. They have no works in their life. All they have is an intellectual profession and assent to basic Christian truth. They have not been regenerate. They're not born again. You foolish fellow. You foolish fellow. Look at your life. You're like a demon. You're no better than a demon. You're, You're Satan carrying a Bible. That faith without works is useless. That faith is not going to save you. That faith isn't going to get you into heaven. You have to stand before Jesus Christ. Your faith is going to be inept. You're going to come up short and you're going to be consigned to hell forever because Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. So one of the points that James is making about true faith, the true nature of faith, because there's counterfeit faiths. There's intellectual faith and intellectual faith only. There's uh, useless faith, he called it. There's satanic, demonic faith. And then there's supernatural dynamic saving faith. And the basic components to supernatural dynamic saving faith are that that faith, its origin is only in God and He gives it through a supernatural revelation and we get it by hearing the Word preached and taught and it is centered in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's a supernatural... It is a gift from God. We talked about that. It's initiated by Him. It has the power to save and regenerate and change souls. And it will always issue in godly works in the life of a believer. Always. And that's how you can distinguish and diagnose false faith from truth faith when you see it. And and that kind of faith incorporates everything about us, our whole being, not just our intellectual capacity, but also our emotions, our will, our volition, our ability to choose everything about me as a person, all the capacities of me as a human being are affected by that supernatural life-changing faith. It is dynamic. It is apparent. And it will become manifest over time. So with that, and the great lesson and good reminder from James on faith, how can we apply this to our own life in a real practical way with the heart of James that really is the heart of God that he keeps hammering on is, well, you've got to care for the people around you. In your immediate vicinity, are you caring for the people around you? That is so basic to the Christian life and the Christian ethic. So just a few things I want to close with by way of a just practical application to think in our own life Does this characterize us, or at least our heart? And then can I begin to implement these things? 
if I haven't already, and there are so many things we could talk about, but I just want to talk about this idea of giving to others. Being a giving person, especially giving to those who are in need. You could get guilty really fast in a real frustrating kind of way as a Christian if you think you are obligated as a Christian to feed the whole world. And every time you see a starving, poor person on the highway or whatever and you feel guilt because you didn't stop and give them five bucks as you were driving by. I'm just telling you, you don't need to feel guilty about that. Or if you see it on television with some commercial and they're telling you you've got to give to the, this organization and that organization. Because you can be overwhelmed, right? Because there's so many people wanting a handout. So the good news is the Bible is really clear about who we give to, what our priorities should be, how we should be responsible stewards. And so that's really how I'm going to delineate this and lay it out there from what I believe is a biblical point of view about giving, especially to those who are in need. Okay, So again, giving more than any other virtue just about reveals the heart of God. God so loved the world that He gave to those who are in need. So one, two, three, four, five, six things to keep in mind about giving to those around you. Uh, number one, there's a priority to giving. There is a priority to giving. You don't just give randomly to everybody and their uncle and their uncle's cousin who's asking for a handout. Number one, it's practically impossible because we don't have enough resources to do that. But the Bible lays out clearly a priority of who... There's not a pecking order, but there's definitely a clear delineation of who we give to first to make the priority. And it would start from Scripture, I think, from those in your, your immediate family. If you have the resources and somebody in your immediate family doesn't have the resources legitimately so, then you need to help them out of love and the heart of Christ. So that's the priority. Also, speaking in your immediate family, Paul says in Timothy that uh, when your parents get older and they become needy in many different ways, that the children are supposed to take care of their older parents. I know Christians who have their parents, older parents, living with them, taking care of them. And that's a godly thing. That's our obligation as Christians. But it's right in Scripture. So there's a priority. So start with your own family and their basic, and they have to be real needs. Number two, uh, you give next to those in your church. Galatians 6.10. This is clear. Uh, I do want to read it because the, the terminology is very specific. Paul says, so then, while we have opportunity, see, if you have opportunity, if you have the goods and you run into a situation where you can help, then do good. It says, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, here it is, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, that there is a priority. It starts with the church. And it starts with your own immediate church, those around you. Uh, also, let's look at Acts chapter 2 if you got that. Otherwise, I can just read it. That was the priority of the early church. Uh, all kinds of people joined the church. Many were poor. There was a famine in Jerusalem. There was persecution in Jerusalem. So you had a lot of financially impoverished people in the church. Hundreds and hundreds of people. <clears throat> and it says they worshipped together. Not only did they worship together. In Acts 2, 44 says, And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all so anyone as anyone who might have need. So the early church considered themselves one literally big family and they met each other's needs. And so that's our priority. Are we meeting the needs of our immediate family and then are we meeting the needs of immediately of our local church? We need to. And that's why we have a benevolence fund here at GBF and many of you have given generously and we, we want to keep giving that money out monthly. And we are. 
And we thank God we can to the people in our church. That pleases God. We need to keep doing that. So we give to our family, we give to our church, and then the next in the pecking order is the church abroad. Other Christians, other legitimate Christians. I think that's uh, 1 John 3, 16 and 18. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul talks about churches sharing with one another when one was financially impoverished or in a trial and they shared with another local church. That was awesome. Please God. Matthew 25, 40, Jesus says at the end of the age, uh, you manifest the fact that you were truly born again because you, you gave to one of my brethren, the least of my brethren. That's a believer. And it's not necessarily somebody in your church. That's why you need to be really leery and, and almost shy away from organizations you know nothing about or their secular organizations and they're asking for your money. I mean, those have been exposed over and over and over again. Many of those places. You've got to do your research. Be a good steward with God's money. Know where it's going. That's why the early church, they laid their money at the apostles' feet. Why? Because they knew who the apostles were. They knew that the apostles were accountable to God and they knew that God would hold the apostles accountable with how the money was used. They gave wisely. So give to your family. Give to your church. Give the local church. Give to the church around the world. We give to Franklin Graham, Samaritan's Purse. Same thing, right? We know who he is. At least I do. We trust him. He has 30 years of integrity and a track record of being faithful with the money of God's people. Uh, Number four, then as you are able and as you have opportunity and as you have the means, then give to your neighbor. They don't have to be a Christian. They don't have to be in your church. That's the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. It's just some guy in need. And And you have, see, the key is you have the opportunity and you have the means. God brought this person into your path. Meet the need. Number five, Sometimes you can't give. Sometimes you just can't, right? You don't need to feel bad about that. I think of Acts chapter, uh, early on in the book of Acts, where Peter and James went by a beggar and they said, silver and gold have I none. I don't have any money. I'm sorry, but I can give you Jesus, right? So when somebody's poor and you don't have the means, you can give them the gospel or do whatever you can to help them. Sometimes you can't give. And then finally, number six, sometimes you shouldn't give. Sometimes you should not give to people who ask. You need to be discerning. You need. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.